Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Well, hello everyone um, and welcome to this Institute for Government Twitter space. And today we are talking about Kwasi Kwarteng's fiscal event. Certainly not a budget or just a fiscal event. Um, I'm not sure any of us buy that, but it was really um, quite some fiscal event. So at 9.30 this morning, he took to his feet in the Commons and he set out what he hopes and what Prime Minister Liz Truss believes is a plan to get the economy growing. From energy support bills to tax cuts, scrapping bankers' bonuses to cutting stamp duty and abolishing the 45p tax rate, Kwarteng's statement was pretty eye-catching. And so I've got a trio of top IFG economic brains here with me to work out what Kwasi Kwarteng announced and why and what it all means. So I've got uh, Deputy Chief Economist Tom Pope. Hi, Tom. So, first question for you then, Tom. Um, we knew Kwasi Kwarteng was going to cut taxes. That had been well flagged. But were we expecting this extent of cuts? It, it really was amazing. Um, you know, we, we'd been briefed quite a lot about quite a lot of tax cuts that were going to happen, all of which did happen and were announced today over you know, the past month, the past couple of weeks. And yet, even then, I was um, listening to the statement. I really was amazed, I think more amazed than I've ever been listening to a, a fiscal statement before, particularly when you had the, the expected announcements, the corporation tax, the um, national insurance, when there was also the, the income tax, the abolishing the top rate and cutting the uh, the basic rate as well. On top of that, further plans announced for investment zones. I mean, it really was a huge tax cutting budget, £45 billion worth of tax cuts per year by the end of the forecast period. Um, not that we had a, a formal forecast, of course. And that, that is pr pretty much the biggest tax cutting budget that we've ever seen. And of course, this wasn't even meant to be a budget. And as you, as you say, enormous tax cuts, but is it is it, is it the plan for growth that the government's built it as? That, that's certainly the gamble that they've taken, and that's what Kwasi Kwarteng was saying. And you know, there are lots of measures that, that Kwarteng will hope will, will deliver that. I thought it was really interesting in the statement, lots of the things he was saying, it sounded very much like 1980s language, you know, focusing on we're going to be boosting the supply side of the economy, increasing the supply side, but now is actually a really difficult time to be using tax cuts to boost growth. Um, normally, you'd expect the, the primary link between a tax cut and growth might be through stimulating demand. When you cut income tax, people have more money in their pocket, they spend more. But at the moment, we're in a situation where the Bank of England thinks that the economy is already too hot, that in order to get inflation back down, it needs to increase interest rates. And that means that you'd expect that demand aspect of the increase in tax cuts to get um, sort of over overridden, um, offset by further increases in interest rates from the Bank of England. That means that to actually drive growth from these tax cuts, what you're relying on is changes to the supply side, more investment from businesses, more labour supply from, from workers, either people getting into the labour force when they weren't there already or, or working longer hours as a result. And I think the jury is very much out on whether these policies will deliver that, particularly given that they're largely um, just cuts to, to tax rates. The, the evidence isn't particularly strong, for example, on corporation tax cuts, that it's going to make a very big difference. And likewise, you'd expect changes to, to national insurance or income tax to be pretty marginal on that score. 
And I, I was going to ask you about that, Ollie, about really the evidence behind some of these things that that this government is 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 choosing to do. Trust has made a, a, a big play about being sort of proud of being prepared to do unpopular things. Is that is that because these are the things that work, but nobody else believes it, or or or, or, or what's the situation? Well, look, I mean, the the sort of overall approach of doing risky or unpopular things in order to drive growth is, I think, a good one. I mean, a lot of economists have complained for some time that the government isn't willing to uh, take risks in terms of spending in order to spur growth. But I don't think many of them would suggest lots of the policies that we've seen announced today. I think that's for two reasons. One is that, as Tom has said, a lot of these policies represent a permanent fall in revenues. So they pose a larger risk to the public finances than, say, spending spending a large amount just over a few years and borrowing to finance that. The other as you suggest, is there's not a lot of evidence supporting that that these sort of policies will drive growth. I mean, as Giles uh, showed in his business investment paper that came out recently, um, there's not a lot of evidence to support that uh, lowering corporation tax rates will drive growth. Um, I've just been uh, reminding myself of the evidence on cutting uh, the top rates of income tax as well, which is one of the rabbits that sort of came out of the hat today and there's not a lot of evidence supporting that driving growth either at least not to the extent that the government would need it to in order to pay for these tax cuts um i mean our work has shown uh, that there are a number of other things that the government could have gone for that might have stood a better chance of, of driving growth so that might have been uh, looking at tax reform um, rather than simply cutting tax rates. Uh, Giles focused on uh, the importance of a good business environment and stability in policy in his recent paper. And Tom Tom Pope, who's uh, who's with us now, his his papers on levelling up also had some policy suggestions in there that, that would drive growth. So I think we welcome the overall approach, but a lot of people are very sceptical about the policies that, that have been announced. And I think we've got Giles with us now. Giles, what's your uh, reaction to today's definitely not a budget? I think it's in um, macroeconomic terms, it is easily the biggest gamble that any government has undertaken since 1972. Um, I mean, we have a, an economy that in a certain sense is running absolutely red hot. Unemployment's really low. Wages are rising. And this government has put an enormous amount of extra fiscal fuel on the fire. It's normally an absolute central tenet of conservative thinking that this is not how you drive growth, that this is what went wrong with the British economy between the 40s and the 70s, where we continuously tried to chase for more growth than the economy could deliver and instead just got inflation. And it was always seen as really irresponsible because you get maybe a sugar rush as the stimulus comes out and then the bills come in and the bills are higher inflation, higher borrowing costs, lower um, public services in the end and a continuous sense of boom and bust which dissuades businesses from investing so they've gone right back to a a copybook that was not in use um 
for, for ever since Margaret Thatcher came in, in theory. And so, I mean, of course, there's all sorts of stuff there about the supply side in there. But you've got to remember, the supply side takes five, ten years to be changed at best, even if you do really radical things and even if they're all really, really good. It's the demand side that's going to happen in the immediate term, the incredible large increase in spending that's being pumped into the economy. And one thing I can be absolutely sure, if the Bank of England had met the day after this rather than the day before, they wouldn't have only raised rates by 0.5%. They might have gone for a full percentage point because it's, it's an enormous amount of extra inflationary fuel. And in political terms, I mean, as we all keep saying, there's you know, a maximum of two years before the next election. Is there time for this strategy to really bear fruit before then? Or do you think this is, does this actually look like a, a budget designed for an uh, election more quickly? Well, bear in mind that I'm, you know, as, as a somewhat member of the Liberal Democrats, I'm no expert in winning elections, um, hands down. But my, um, my, my view is that, you know, normally this sort of thing is popular because it does something like lower unemployment and people were worried about unemployment or it puts lots of money in people's pockets and they feel really good about it. Right now, people are really worried about their bills and they're really worried about inflation. So I'm not even sure that it's immediately good in the short run. The people who are really happy about it, there will be some very happy higher earners who are a small constituency. And businesses are generally happy because every business should want um, tax cuts. But I'm, I'm just not sure that there's even a particular short-run logic to it, particularly as we go into the winter, that even though the government has done the right thing on fuel bills and taken great efforts to take the harsher edge off the rising fuel bills, they are still going to be very, very high. And people are going to look at those and go, I'm having a really quite a difficult winter and my mortgage rates are going up. And so I'm not sure it's got that classic sort of boomy, happy feel like the 1988 budget, that Nigel Lawson did some similar things, cutting top rates of tax, for example. Uh, and then the, the economy was growing 4 or 5% and there was a phenomenal housing boom, 20% rise in house prices. We're not having that kind of scenario where it, the, the, the chickens then come into roost a year or two later because we're not having the original really happy boost in um, in activity and growth and you say there i mean we'll come on in a bit to talk about about the energy bills which obviously wasn't the main headline from today but is is really crucial part of, of what the government's been doing since it, it came to power i just want to touch briefly on the on the point about sort of scrutiny and evidence ollie i mean it is remarkable isn't it that uh, announcements on this scale were made without any form of ABR independent forecast? Yes, it's remarkable. It's uh, frankly incredibly irresponsible. Um, so the Office for Budget Responsibility, the government's official forecaster, had a forecast ready to go that would have showed the economic environment that the government was operating in and it may have showed the impact of some policies. It might not have shown all of them, because I imagine this was all cobbled together at quite a pace, given that the government's only been in place for three weeks. But it's it's quite a symbolic rejection of objective scrutiny to essentially block the publication of the OBR's forecast and not have a sort of objective voice describing what is going on here. And I think it's even more shocking if we remember the history of the OBR. It was established by George Osborne in 2010 because previous chancellors used to make their own economic forecasts with the assistance of officials at the Treasury. 
Um, but those forecasts were too optimistic. Chancellors thought that their growth, that their policies would have a much larger impact on growth than they ended up having. That meant that the government would get less uh, tax receipts in and ultimately end up borrowing a lot more. And this damaged the UK government's fiscal credibility. Now, 12 years later, we've got a Chancellor who is blocking a forecast from the OBR and making, frankly, unevidenced claims about the extent to which his policies will boost growth. So we've kind of sort of gone in a, gone in a loop, and I'm, uh, I, I really hope that he affirms his commitment to, to, to the OBR and the scrutiny that it provides. Yeah, I mean, he did say something about that, didn't he? But in the context of not having asked... Um, asked for a forecast it does ring somewhat hollow um, Tom I just also want to come back to this question about about tax and and we've done a lot of work in the past on on tax reform um, do you think what we heard today suggests that trust is really serious about grasping that particular nettle it's really interesting because for, I've been working on tax for quite a long time and one thing that would should have been music to my ears as a chancellor coming along and saying I'm willing to do unpopular things on tax to drive growth. There are, there are so many ways in which the tax system is is not fit for purpose. It's got a, a whole bunch of um, sort of distortions in it, arbitrary ways that it biases activity in favour of, of some things against others. Take the example of self-employment and employment and many other examples beside that. So you have a chancellor coming along who says they're willing to do unpopular things on tax to drive growth. Well, I've got a list as long as your arm of, of, of policies that I think he might like to adopt. Instead, what we saw from from Kwarteng today, his version of tax reform is is really just cutting tax rates. That's all that we've seen so far, at least. Um, I mean, to be fair, in, in three weeks, it's probably quite hard to come up with much more. But that's another reason why um, the event today really didn't didn't need to happen today. All of these policies could have waited until later in the autumn, alongside a full. OBR forecast. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the, the important thing is that there are policies there. And one example that brought this out really clearly, I think one of the, the niche policies that Kwarteng announced was IR35 rules. He's abolishing these rules, which are designed to determine when contractors should be taxed as employees and when, when they should be taxed as self-employed people. And this has been quite an unpopular measure that was introduced to put the burden on employers rather than employees. And it's cost quite a lot of, and re removing it will cost quite a lot of money, but having it in there has cost businesses quite a lot of money in compliance costs, having to work out which contractor uh, is going to uh, be taxed in this way, which in that way. If you take a step back from that, the only reason why that's a problem in the first place is that we have a tax system that makes it much better, much more tax advantage to be treated as a self-employed person rather than an employee. The, the radical uh, growth-affirming approach there would be to uh, reduce or eliminate that difference between the self-employed and employees. And then you don't need to worry about how they're classified because they'll be taxed the same either way. As it is, those contractors are now going to get to choose themselves whether they're taxed as employees and employers or, or as employees or as self-employed. Uh, they'll pay slightly lower lateral insurance um, if they're um, owner-managed companies, they'll pay slightly less corporation tax. But ultimately, um, we've not solved the problem in, in the tax system that's there. And I think that's a real example of, 
of how the opportunity has been missed. In theory, this this may not be the last time that that Kwarteng can announce tax reform, so he could could perhaps do do more in the future. Um, but that being said, he's already announced enough uh, tax measures today for a, a whole career in number eleven. That's right, and this may be a, a overly geeky IFG interest, but. Giles, what did you make of the abolition of the Office of Tax Simplification? Oh, um, well, look, I mean, it was set up by George Osborne, I think, back in 2010. So it's yet another sort of stick in the eye of George Osborne, uh, which but I don't think it was done for petty reasons. I think, I mean, let's, on the surface, it was a really bad move. The idea, oh, we can get rid of this office that's dedicated and thinking about it and independent and won't be swayed by like political concerns. We're just going to tell all of our officials to take this really, really seriously. That is, that, I mean, that is another sort of blow against the idea that institutions really matter and can improve your policymaking when they bind you. And when they irritate you, they're doing their job. Now, um, why did he do it? I mean, I'm thinking he probably does believe in tax simplification in kind of abstract way. But the Office for Tax Simplification was maybe giving advice behind the scenes that a lot of the things he was doing was making the tax system more complicated. And I've just been trying to read at speed the um, all, all of the different ideas that can go into these investment zones. And there are so many of them. And there are so many, in effect, rules that say, you know, if you're just in this postcode, not that postcode, you can give a tax break to uh, a new hire. You can have better enhanced capital allowances all these sorts of things that are, are like sort of fingernails down a blackboard for economists because they're like reasons to distort economic behavior in a way that's normally bad you know people moving an office a few blocks in order to get a an extra tax bung or hiring somebody rather than keeping on their existing person because the hiring is being incentive you know lots of what we call distortions and maybe the office for tax simplification was saying oh by the way you've taken a big backward step there and the Chancellor thought, well, like, what I could, I could do without having all these people telling me I'm doing the wrong thing. And, and so I don't think it's a great move. It hadn't been incredibly effective because politics rules tax much more than technocracy. Um, but it's a sad, a sad event in my view. OK, let's move on to energy bills, which, as I said, wasn't the, the main um, part of the statement. But, Ollie, you've been looking into uh, the whole energy situation for us what more did we learn today? Um, partly about, I guess, how, how much this is going to cost. So we didn't learn uh, a lot more today. We sort of had the announcements that have uh, dribbled out over the past few weeks confirmed. Um, the growth plan, the non-budget document, what, what, whatever you want to call the, the thing that the Treasury released today, did have an estimate of how much the support for households and businesses are going to cost over the next six months. They said it's going to be about £60 billion. Um, that is in line with... Uh, what uh, us and our colleagues at the IFS more recently have estimated. Now, what we don't know is how much the whole thing is going to cost, because, of course, this is in place for two years for households. Um, uh, so the, the IFS forecast that, that, that came out the other day, sort of in, 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 place of the, in place of the official ones from the OBR, suggests that, you know, this could be £150 billion, but depending on how the wholesale gas price moves um, over the next two years, uh, it's hugely uncertain. So it could be anywhere between 50 
and £200 billion pounds that, that, that we spend on this over the next two years. It will be interesting to see what the OBR's estimate of it is when, when they are, if they are permitted to publish their forecast. I think there's probably one other thing in the growth plan that's worth noting, and that's the uh, sort of new commitment to energy efficiency measures. One thing that we've been calling for since since March, and our colleague uh, Tom Sass put out a very good paper on it uh, a, a week or two ago, is is on uh, energy efficiency and essentially building up resilience. So we're not so exposed to these sort of fluctuations in energy prices. In the future, the government has committed one billion pounds over three years for energy efficiency. Frankly, that's tiny when they're committing to spend forty-five billion pounds every year on their tax cuts. And I think that does reveal something about the sort of prioritisation of policies and and uh, and things like that 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 went into this budget i mean we would have hoped for a lot more a lot more focus on those long-term things that will you know protect our economy protect our vulnerability to financial markets um sorry not financial markets uh commodity markets going forwards um I guess one other thing that we're still waiting for is precise details of exactly how a lot of this support will be delivered. Um, for example, we don't know how households in Northern Ireland will get the support. The government has firmly committed to making sure that they do get it. Um, but exactly how and whether it will be delivered on time, I think, are still unresolved questions. As, uh, as with business support, the government is committed to implement that from the start of October. But there are worries that it might not come in until November, which will be too late for a lot of firms. And Ollie, how does uh, the support that the UK is offering compared to other countries? So this is an interesting question. We actually recorded a, a special IFG podcast on this yesterday with uh, some European energy experts, which, which should be out soon. I guess there are three major things. The first is the size of UK's energy support. According to one report from Bruegel, which is a, a German think tank, the UK is going to be spending twice as much as a percent of GDP than any other European country on its energy support. Now, there's a lot going on behind that estimate, but I think the main one is how long our support is in place for. So we're freezing prices for two years. Many other European countries aren't. The second is how we're paying for it. Um, our government has ruled out uh, any further windfall taxes on oil and gas companies or other energy generators in order to recoup some of the money that we're spending on energy support. Meanwhile, the EU has just uh, announced plans for a sort of block-wide uh, cap on prices slash windfall tax that's going to raise about 150 billion euros to help them with the costs there. And then I think the third thing, um, which really surprised uh, our, our guests from EU countries on the podcast, was that the government here is doing nothing to manage energy demand. So lots of countries in the European Union are setting targets for reducing electricity usage, for reducing gas usage. You know, they're doing... Um, do, doing all that sort of thing because they realise that by lowering the price, people might use more energy than 
they otherwise would do. Uh, Liz Truss has said that she doesn't want to do anything of that sort because it appears to be too overbearing, but that might leave us exposed to energy security risks in the winter. So, you know, potentially facing actual real shortages of energy because we're using too much. We can all look forward to that. Um, Giles, can I come back to you? Sure. Clearly, politically, it seems like an attempt at, at reinvention. I mean, we've had 12 years of Conservative government, um, but uh, this is this trust trying to say, you know, this is this is something yeah. new. Do you think the public <laughs> care? She's trying to say, well, we haven't really had 12 years of Conservative government. And I remember when I was an advisor in Downing Street and we'd see Liz Truss's speeches coming out and get some of the vibes coming from her office, you got the sense that she always thought they weren't just being Conservative enough. There was, although there was a lot of criticism of the Conservative model that the Thatcher had come out with. And, um, you know, and it led to inequality, closing down northern industries, um, markets gone mad in places where consumers felt exposed. And there was Liz Truss saying, no, 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 we just didn't go far enough. And we've been subsidising business too much, not cutting taxes enough, not cutting spending enough. And so she's maybe implicitly saying, and she can't be so out and out rude about it, you, you haven't seen a Conservative yet, and here I finally am. And you'll get a big lusty cheer from the extremely um, right-wing Tory think tanks who've always been calling for this sort of thing. So that's the politics, that she thinks that Conservatives have maybe lost popularity by compromising their core values by confusing people with talk about ill-defined ideas like levelling up without explaining exactly how it's going to happen, but by not really deregulating. So let's allow anyone to build anything without really any planning controls in various zones. So yeah, it's a kind of like a big experiment of that sort of model. I would say though, it's a model that maybe half the Conservative Party really feels full-throatedly behind. And the Conservative Party is right now about 30% of the, of, the, um, of the vote. So it's a real minority vision being sort of thrust out there as a big experiment. And it's almost like they're taking a delight in dismaying every sort of orthodox figure with a calculator in his hand. And I mean, this is certainly the way in which Rachel Reese, the shadow chancellor, responded um, to the to the budget, uh, going to yeah. call it. Um, but, you know, she said this is a battle of ideas. Um, it, it really feels like a while since we've been in a situation where we've had yeah. clear economic dividing lines. Yeah, I mean, what bothers me about it is the, the normal dynamic of these kind of arguments is we're going to cut lots of taxes and won't you love the tax cuts? And the business lobbies come out saying, well, those tax cuts great. And then the cost of it, which is the higher borrowing and the, and the much weaker funding for public services, is a slow burn problem. And that's going to come in three or four years' time. And that's the sort of... And by the time that happens, they're trying to move the debate on again. I think I do hope that people look very, very hard at whether this approach is good enough to fund the really important public services we need in this country. Is it going to be good enough to, I mean, to, to keep the NHS surviving through or the, the higher inflation having already eroded, eroded the value of its settlements? Will they need more money because they're not getting more from the from the Chancellor? That sort of debate goes away when everyone's so excited by the, the lowering of a few tax rates. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think the Labour Party has at least got that clear, clear red and blue water between them to, to have a go at that question. And we've done a lot of work on, on public services and the, the pressures on them. Tom, can you just uh, give us your immediate reaction to, to where this budget has, has left spending on public services? Yeah, absolutely. I think, firstly, it was notable that, that Cosa Quartain didn't mention public services and indeed 
he didn't have to because there wasn't an OBR forecast to, to respond to. And he was able to say, oh, we're going to continue to keep debt falling as a share of GDP in the medium term, while also announcing a bunch of very expensive tax cuts. But because there were no new forecasts where he actually had to show how the money added up, he didn't have to mention money for public services. But as Giles says, um, the what started out as relatively generous um, settlements for departments at the 2021 spending review has already been eroded by by changes to inflation. And even though those spending review settlements were quite generous, there was a reason why they were. And that's that public services were really not in um, a very good state at all after the pandemic. Um, that's true in health, but it's also true in other services as well, um, in, in prisons, in courts. And this was also after a decade of, of quite low funding of public services. And as our annual performance tracker report um, outlined, and a new version will be, be coming out this autumn as well, lots of public services are really struggling. Performance is much worse than it was before the pandemic in most of them. Um, if you really want to, to solve that, money alone is not a kind of perfect solution. It, it's You also need more doctors and more nurses. You need a, a staffing plan, for example. But it's going to be very hard to give the public the kind of public services that they're going to expect without an additional investment. And after the big tax cuts announced today, it's really very hard to see how that could be deliverable, certainly within any reasonable set of fiscal rules. If you're committed to all of these tax cuts, then you'd want to be reducing spending in order to, to try to meet them, even though um, on the face of it, you should be increasing spending on, on public services if you want to improve their performance. And it, I suppose there is a world in which this chancellor decides he doesn't really want any fiscal rules. He's really not worried about it at all. Um, but then if you try to increase spending on public services uh, by more borrowing, there is a question of, of how you'd even be able to borrow it, given how, how guilt rates have started to move after this statement. At the very least, it would be an extremely expensive uh, set of borrowing. Yeah. And I mean, it feels like if we've got two years to go until the the next general election, I mean, maybe we don't. But if we do, there's there's quite a um, well, there's enough time for the impact of this all on public services to start to play through, and one wonders what, how that's going to play in the next election. I just so want definitely, to you... and I think sorry, sorry Hannah, so, yeah, I think I mean it's already playing through in many ways. If you look at the um, talk around, around the NHS and the various problems there, it was notable that we were meant to have what was billed as an NHS announcement uh, yesterday from the new health secretary, that didn't have nearly as much detail or money behind it as, as Quartens uh, today. In fact, that that just had a, a new target with basically no no new money behind it, um, which that suggests that there isn't really a, a plan to fix the NHS, if you like, from, from this government. Or well, at least not yet. Maybe we need to give them more time. Um, I just want to give you each a chance to offer any final thoughts on what we should take away from from what we've heard today. Um, Ollie, can I start with you? Yes, sure. Uh, so I think after today, I mean, still processing everything, um, but I think I'm going to reserve most of my judgments um, until November to see what they announce at big budget. I mean, if big budget is proportional to the mini budget, then, then, it's, then it's going to be absolutely incredible. Um, but uh, I'm going to be looking out for the OBR forecast. 
how exactly that lays out the trade-offs that the Kwarteng uh, is is facing in terms of the public finances um, and what his reaction to that is. Because based on the market reaction, based on the reaction of, of, of us, of other think tanks today, he's either going to have to cut public spending, raise taxes or convince us that permanently running a large deficit is a sustainable fiscal strategy. So far, he's implied that he doesn't need to do any of the above, but at some point he's going to have to face that choice. Giles, can I come to you? Final thoughts? Yes, um, I think what's interesting for this is not as much... Well, obviously, what he's done is incredible and it's going to be fascinating to a macroeconomist for a long while. I suspect global economists are going to be looking at the UK going in an opposite direction to a lot of people and say and saying here's a fascinating experiment let's see what happens um but it's also fascinating for us government watchers in the method the method seems to be governments should be able to behave without any kind of constraint constraints including OBR checking their figures the OTS criticizing them for complicating things I mean this is the the sort of the amount of the sheer amount announced with okay it's three weeks old but given the morning for the queen it's really like a week this is um this is not the way normally policy is made. You do not do things of such consequence without considerable thought normally. But they've decided, no, thinking is actually the problem. We're tired of people telling us their thoughts. We need to just act. And that new method, is it going to be, is it going to persist? Or are they going to return to the system where they actually try to kick the tyres of policies before they do them? Or is it going to be like this hell, pell-mell um, approach right up to an election? Yes, we will see. And Tom, I'm going to give you the final word. I think what, what this has shown is that uh, Liz Truss, when she was talking in her campaign about her economic beliefs, was not bluffing. It wasn't just rhetoric. And the commitment is real. Um, as I said at the start, this really was a I was very surprised, shocked even when when listening to the statement. I think that means that we should also be looking out pretty carefully for the for the other announcements that the quasi Kwarteng trailed that might come in future weeks on the regulation side as well, whether that be on, on planning and infrastructure or on, on digital and agriculture as well. I think um, yeah, my main takeaway from today is that we're going to be in for quite a ride with this government. And I think that's a good note on which to end our Twitter space. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. If you want to hear more from our IFG experts, please check out our website and see what we're up to at Labour and Conservative conferences. We've got a huge number of fringe events with some fantastic panels going on at both. If you're going to be in Liverpool or Birmingham, come and say hello to the team. And we might see you there, or otherwise see you next time. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.